So we're in a series on the religions of the world, and we've chosen to focus on some of them. Last week we did Scientology. Tonight we're going to focus on Judaism, and if we can get to it, Kabbalah. We're also looking next week at Christian science, then Hinduism, Sikhism, if we can get to it, Buddhism, Islam, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness. Let's talk about Judaism. For us, knowing a little bit about Judaism is a little bit easier maybe than what we just studied about Scientology, okay? Because we have a common root and a common beginning. What I'm going to do is not summarize so much Jewish theology as maybe summarize some Jewish practice so that you guys can kind of catch up on where are Jews, what do they believe, and where are they today? First of all, who are Jews? They consider themselves the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember in the Bible, Jacob was renamed Israel. And that's where the nation of Israel comes from. They're the people who descended specifically from Abraham, then Isaac, and then Jacob, a specific lineage. You know, eventually it becomes the 12 tribes of Israel because they're the 12 tribes who descend from Jacob. They're also known as Israelites. They're also known as Hebrews. But the preferred term that they use is Jews. So those terms are kind of interchangeable, but they preferred to be called Jews. The religion is Judaism, common belief in one God. And that's something that we share together, of course, because what we term as the Old Testament is really the Hebrew scriptures. So I think most of us kind of have an idea of the history of the Jews and how they became to be a people in Egypt, how they went through the Exodus after the Passover, how they settled in the land of Canaan, and how over the centuries they were constantly being raided and taken over by the empires around them, like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians. That was their history. Up until the time that we have a return, and then, of course, the New Testament begins. When we start with the story of Jesus, that's where we kind of fork off in a different direction. What do they believe in? Here's some things for their scriptural basis. The Torah is really a word meaning revelation, and it's comprised of the first five books that we know as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books of the law. You'll also hear them referred to as the Pentateuch, okay? But in Hebrew, it's the Torah. There's 613 commandments. And if you turn to Exodus and Deuteronomy, you might find most of them. 248 of them are thou shalt nots, and 365 of them are thou shalt, okay? Give you an example. We're going to look at how they interpret these, because that's a lot of commandments that you'd have to keep. Another term, the Tanakh. That's an acronym, but the word Tanakh is the Torah, together with the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. So if you take the entire scriptures that we call the Old Testament, that's the Tanakh. If you put them side by side, they might be a little bit different in the order. They might be a little bit different in how we break up the books, but the content is the same because we adopted the Tanakh into our Old Testament. Okay, let's look at where it went, because this is really what's more like, how did things develop? This is where we kind of fork off. I'm not going to go through the whole Jesus part. I think we know that part. But what happened after Christ's death and resurrection, historically what was going on in Palestine at the time? In 70 AD, the temple is destroyed by the Romans. Now, this is a significant event in Judaism because this was the place where God had commanded that they were going to bring sacrifices. This was the place where they were going to atone as it was commanded. And suddenly, that place no longer exists. And, in fact, after there's a second rebellion of the Jews, I think in 135, 
the Romans actually forbid the Jews from even entering Jerusalem. So now you've got the Torah, which basically commands these kind of festivals and the Day of Atonement and certain sacrifices to be made at the temple. Now they can't even have access to the temple. It's destroyed. They can even go back to Jerusalem, the holy city. So this changes Judaism because now they're scattered. In fact, 70 AD is referred to as the, the diaspora. It's basically the scattering because they're expelled from the land that they've been living, and now they will be expelled into North Africa and into Europe and into all parts of Asia Minor, and Judaism is being spread out through this scattering. And that's where it begins to change a little bit from biblical Judaism, the one that we would identify as the practice of the Old Testament. Because now, in small communities, the rabbis start to continue the, well, they continue the interpretation of the Tanakh. This interpretation becomes known as the rabbinic teaching, a movement kind of away. Well, it's always been there. The rabbis have always been there. There's always been kind of schools of thought, like how to interpret these 613 commandments, because it's very hard to keep 613 commandments, especially as difficult as they are. I mean, you guys flip back to the Old Testament, start reading Exodus and start reading Deuteronomy and look at those and go, man, those are tough. So the rabbis started to interpret what those actually mean. And the, the shift became more of an emphasis on how you practice, on your action, what we would in Christianity call works. It became more of an emphasis on that. One of the books that I've been reading about Judaism has this comment. Rabbis were determined to prove wrong the Apostle Paul. This was a reaction movement at this point. Remember, the Apostle Paul had actually said in Romans, he says that, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. And there was kind of a reaction to that, like, oh yeah? We can show that you can achieve righteousness through the law. In fact, we, we're, they're going to stake all of rabbinic interpretation of the Torah on this, that it is possible. So that's what begins to develop what's called the Talmud. This is more interpretation of the Tanakh, specifically the Torah, so first you have the Mishnah. It's a detailed commentary on every one of the 613 commandments. Eventually you have the Gomorrah, which is another interpretation on top of the Mishnah. They had earlier interpretations that they tried to incorporate. The Midrash or the Midrashim. Okay, now I'm throwing out a lot of terms here, but the basic concept is the same. You have the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, what we would term as the Old Testament, and they're looking at it thinking, how do you live all these things? And they started to find interpretations for them. And each rabbi would add his own interpretation. And there was this collection called the Mishnah, the Gomorrah, which eventually both of them became known as the Talmud. To make matters even more confusing, there were different Talmuds. There was like the Talmud of Israel and there was the Talmud of Babylonia. They were developed separately. So you had to kind of consult different ones or decide which one you wanted to follow. Let me give you some concrete examples. Have you heard that Jews keep kosher like some Jewish people keep kosher, right? Let's talk about what that means. In Exodus 23, 19, it's also repeated in Exodus 34, 26 and Deuteronomy 14, 21. Here's what it says. Thou shalt not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. That's the commandment. So thou shalt not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Now most of us would think, all right, no goat in the mother's milk, all right? <laughs> 
So most of us are thinking, just how about no goat? You know, that'd just be good enough, right? No goat, and then we don't have to worry about the whole commandment. Here was the Midrash interpretation, or what later became put into the Mishnah. Cook was probably meant to include all kinds of cooking. Young goat was meant to all, include all kinds of meat. Milk was intended to cover all variations of dairy products. Notice this is an expansion of what's in the commandment, but they're trying to understand what does this commandment mean? Why did God put it in here? So they come up with must apply to all cooking, must mean all meat, must mean all dairy products. Sounds like they're making it harder for themselves. The result, here's the interpretation. Milk products and meat products must be kept separate. Separate dishes, pots, pans, knives, forks, spoons, and glasses are to be used for each of them. So what was happening at this time is the rabbis were starting to create a body of law to keep the Jews distinct and separate because they no longer had a common land. They were hearkening back to when God was taking people through the, you know, through the desert towards the promised land saying, I want you to be a separate people. And when you go into the promised land, I want you to be separate from the people around you. Now they no longer had a promised land. They were scattered. They were afraid that they were going to be integrated because they were such a small number of people. How are they going to continue to be Israel in the midst of all these other lands that they're in if there was no land of Israel and they couldn't go there anyway? So these rabbinic interpretations was what was making them distinct. Here's another one. How about the Sabbath? We know that it says, honor the Sabbath, right? Well, they came up with 39 types of things you can't do on the Sabbath. A list. Planting, plowing, reaping, binding, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing, washing, beating, dyeing, spinning. I, I go on. I mean, there's like a list that you could look at that these are the interpretation of the 39 things you can't do on the Sabbath. And then under that, each one had an interpretation of what did that mean. For example... One of them is, you cannot tie a knot on the Sabbath. So then they had to interpret, like, what is tying a knot? And that actually spawned even more interpretation. Because it didn't just mean, you know, we would think, like, what does it mean, tie a knot? Like, that means, like, take two pieces of string and tie a knot, right? Or a rope, right? But they actually eventually came up with an interpretation that said, you can't put two things that are the same together in some way. So it eventually came to be interpreted even that you can't put, like, two bushels of like grapes together or something like that because that would be somehow putting them together, right? Just, just trying to give you an example of how these interpretations kept going. Question. It clearly was a list, right, even before Jesus, things they couldn't do because they were telling him like, how dare you heal on the Sabbath, how dare you do this on the Sabbath, so this is like existing before, so what is commanded by God in the Old Testament and what is made up? Well, we have the commandment from the Ten Commandments about the Sabbath, right? But you're right that even by the time of Jesus, there were already interpretations that were being played out. Uh, there's the interpretations of Rabbi Hillel, who was around at the time, who actually predates Jesus by a little bit. There were these schools of thought that were already starting to form. That's what I refer to as the Midrash, or the Midrashim, where before even the Mishnah was being formed, which comes later, in the later centuries after the Common Era, as the Jews are, as after they're scattered, even before that, the rabbis were seeking to interpret how do we live these things out. So there was the oral tradition where they were being passed down and people were forming them and schools of thought were developing. Like even among Jesus' time, you remember they asked him, uh, they asked him about divorce. Like can a man divorce a woman for any reason? The question is actually meant to find out does he follow the pharisaical view 
which comes from a certain rabbi that you cannot divorce except in certain cases, or the more Sadducee view, which followed a different rab rabbinical tradition that said you could divorce for any reason. So they were really asking him, like, do you believe in an any reason divorce? They weren't asking him so much about divorce. They're trying to figure out which school of thought are you following. And he, of course, is trying to show that I'm not following either of these schools of thought. I've come to fulfill the law. I've not come to abolish it. We covered that whole scheme in our section on Matthew, so I'll leave that discussion where it is. But he was trying to say, I'm not going to fall for that, trying to peg me into one of these two camps. But at one point, God was commanding certain things to be observed and not to be done on the Sabbath. And that hasn't been thrown out just because Christ came. It hasn't been thrown out. That's that question of how much of the law is still active for Christians today in their practice, separate discussion that we've already kind of touched on. But the important part is they were already trying to figure this out even before Christ. And if you see that down here, I've said that by the time they take the Mishnah and the Gomorrah and they create the Talmud or the Talmudim, which is the two Talmuds, one of Israel and one of Babylonia, you have 15,000 pages and 35 volumes of interpretation. All right. If you study the Hebrew scriptures the way you study them, if you're going to follow the Talmudic way of studying them, is you open up this volume. In the middle of the page is like one verse, right? And all around it is all the interpretations. So it's like they'll put the verse and then like, here's this interpretation and here's this one. They'll put them all in this thing. So your job, for the most part, you're reading very, very little of the Tanakh and a lot of commentary. Now when we study in Christianity, it's not unlike the way we do it. We may open up the scriptures, we may read something, and then if you're teaching or if you're studying, you may read three or four commentaries to try to focus in on what others have said about this thing. The problem in Judaism is it almost obscures the scripture because it is what they're studying. They're studying the commentary. I mean, you could spend your whole life reading 35 volumes in those 15,000 pages. So a lot of people ask, and the reason I brought all this up is a lot of people say, like, why don't they just read the Old Testament? Why don't they just see that Jesus is the Messiah? Like, most of the time, people are reading the Talmud. They're not really even getting into the Tanakh. And as you'll see in a moment, for most of them, it's not even important. Just for us to be educated, the major Jewish holidays that are celebrated, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, we see that biblically commanded. That's the Day of Atonement that happens once a year where the sins of the nation, at least in the Tanakh, were to be forgiven. It's a day of fasting, the day when the priest would sacrifice and through a blood offering enter the Holy of Holies. And this is where Judaism kind of had a problem because suddenly there was no temple for them to do this anymore. First, there was a tabernacle, which was the tent that God specifically commanded very, very detailed ways that it was supposed to be set up. Then later it was the temple. Now there wasn't anything. Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, marking the beginning of the Jewish calendar. Passover, of course, we know as the feast that's also commanded in Scripture following the Exodus that they were to commemorate once a year. And finally, Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, which is not in our Bible. Hanukkah comes in that period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's found in the book of 1 Maccabee, which is not in our canon and is in the, the Jewish writings. It's not part of the Tanakh either. It's considered part of the later writings in Judaism. The, the short story is there was a rebellion after the, the temple had been desecrated by the Syrian governor, the Syrian king, who ruled over Palestine at the time. It had been desecrated, and they had sacrificed to idols inside the temple. So 
the, the, there was the Maccabean revolt. They revolted. No one gave them a chance. They fought back. They won. And they decided to rededicate the temple. The reason they have Hanukkah, the reason it's called the Festival of Lights, you might hear this, that there was only enough oil for one day, but it ended up lasting eight days, and they had to light the oil on the altar, and it ended up lasting for eight days, and it was a miracle, and that's why it was called the Festival of Lights, and that's what's celebrated. What's interesting is in the early Jewish writings, that miracle is not written down. It came later. In the early Jewish writings, the first Jewish writings in Maccabee, which is where they get this from, in Maccabee, it doesn't talk about the miracle of the oil. The miracle of the oil is later put into the Talmud. So there's a discrepancy as to whether the miracle even happened. So just in case you want to know what Hanukkah is all about, just don't tell anybody like, hey, that's not true, it didn't happen, I heard it. You know, that's probably not what you want to do. You just want to understand it and I understand the holiday. Okay, let's talk about Judaism in America. Yeah? Um, like, is it similar or is it very different? Like what they consider like, like do they consider the Tanakh like inerrant and like this is like breathe of God, like if they say that, like is the Talmud considered part of that, or do they consider the Talmud just like commentary? How does that relate at all? Like, I'm not really understanding. It's going to depend on which sect of Judaism you're talking about. Okay. And I'm actually going to cover a little bit about their view of Scripture when we get to that point. Okay. So give me one second, okay. okay? Let's start with this premise when we talk about what are the Jews doing today. Most Jews that you will encounter are probably going to be secular they're not really going to be strongly tied to religion the way that we think of religion, a matter of faith. They're going to be tied to it in other ways. It may be cultural. It may be traditional. The person who I'm citing right here, Stan Telchin, is Jewish. Uh, he converted to Christianity, and he wrote a very interesting book about just Jews and Christians and the whole way that the church needs to interact with Judaism. His observations after much study is this, and it bears out in a lot of other books I've read. Today's Jews rarely think of God. Some deny that he exists. Others think he is not relevant in today's society. Still others say that man is the only God on earth. Very few truly believe God is sovereign, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, immutable, and eternal, which are kind of the definitions of the God that we find in the Old Testament. So what does that really mean? Is being Jewish like a religious identity? Is it racial, ethnic? Is it cultural? I mean, who, who even gets to be considered Jewish? And most commentators will say it's probably a mixture. Now, if you, it depends on who you ask. If you ask most Jews, they'll say it's a mixture of these things because some Jews believe in God. Most don't anymore. We're talking about today's Judaism, not, not biblical Judaism, not the Judaism of the rabbinic period. Talking about kind of now. Is it a racial or ethnic identity? Well, sure, there's some connection to a people group. They're the descendants of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, but people can convert into Judaism. You can't just say it's an ethnic group because there are Jews in Asia, there's black Jews, there's white Jews, there's all sorts of people that are Jewish. There's Jews in Europe, there are Jews in North Africa, and you can't really peg and say it's just one single group. Uh, is it cultural? Sure. In some ways, some people cling to it for that reason. Yeah. But it was kind of its own group, wasn't it? Because they were the chosen people of God or whatever, and Christ was to be descended of them. Like. At one time, I think the best way to describe them is probably a nation. They were a nation, though, that did descend originally from one person, Israel, his descendants. 
And it's interesting because when God makes his promises to Israel, he most often calls them a nation. So even when they're not a nation in our political sense, like even when they were scattered, they're probably their closest identity if, they, if we're going to use the biblical promises that God made was as a nation. Who is considered a Jew? Well, that depends on who you ask too. And that also depends because a lot of people want to know how many people are Jewish. Estimates range between 13 and 18 million Jews in the world. 5.5 million of them live in the U.S. About 5.5 million of them live in Israel. And the rest are scattered in a number of places. Uh, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, uh, South America. But the reason the number varies is because it depends on who you ask. If you use the halichic definition, that means it has to come from matrilineal descent, meaning your mom has to be Jewish, or else you don't count. Or you can convert. That's the more conservative way of looking at it. More modern ways of looking at it are if you have any kind of Jewish heritage of any kind and you don't renounce it, then you're still Jewish. And this has been a big debate lately among Messianic Jews in Israel. There was a Supreme Court decision that just came down in Israel that finally affirmed that Messianic Jews could still be considered Jews and have equal rights in Israel. Up until April, that was not the case. From 1958, when they first made the Law of Return in Israel, which defined who could be considered a Jew and who is not, until just a couple months ago, if you converted from Judaism and became a Messianic Jew or believed in Jesus, you were you are not considered Jewish anymore. That's now changing. All right, let's talk about kind of in Philip's question. Unlike Christianity, which is totally unified, has no denominations whatsoever, and we agree on everything, Judaism has a number of sects, although not nearly as many as we've broken into. First, there are the segregationist sects, okay? There's Hasidic Judaism and Yeshiva Judaism. Both of them are part of the Orthodox tradition. So let me just talk about Orthodox Judaism and I'll come back to them. How do we define Orthodox Judaism? Those are the people who generally believe that God's word is inerrant. It is inspired. They believe that God's word is true. And the, the Talmud would be commentary and interpretation of all of that. They really try to live up to the 613 commandments. As interpreted, of course. And in practice, they probably emphasize some more than others. Like these, keeping the Sabbath observing and study of the Talmud, keeping kosher, separating men and women in congregations, uh, wearing skull caps. You'll notice that the Orthodox will wear a skull cap. Some of you will hear the word yarmulke uh, to cover their heads. Some women actually wear wigs as well to cover their heads or certain shawls. Uh, prayer three times a day in Hebrew. Children receive religious instruction in Hebrew school. Then you have Reform Judaism, which makes up about 30% of Jews in America. By the way, Orthodox, 11%. Reform Judaism... 30%. This arose in the 18th century. They don't consider the scriptures inspired. They don't consider them inerrant. They don't consider them divine. They don't really consider them. Basically, their view is the only, only the moral laws in the Bible are binding, and there's debate about what those are. No need to follow the customs. No need to follow the rituals. Basically, it's modern. Most of their services are performed in English or the local language, while the Orthodox congregations follow everything in Hebrew. Men and women can sit together in Reform temples, and you could have women rabbis in Reform temples. So 
believing in God had reformed Judaism is kind of optional. It really, it's, it's okay if you do, it's, if you don't, that's okay too. The Bible's kind of like a history of the Jewish people in some way. It's a history of what they believe, but you don't really need to believe any of it to be a part of that. So if Orthodox is over here, Reform went over here, and conservative Judaism kind of came in the middle to react a little bit, to maybe bridge the gap. It was a reaction to Reform Judaism. They consider themselves bound by the Torah, uh, but they're allowed to introduce some more modern innovations. They're allowed to kind of move it forward a little bit. Okay? So you have to ask yourself which one. Now, when I look at Hasidic Judaism and Yeshiva Judaism, those are versions of Orthodox Christianity that just feel like they need to be separated from the population. So here's the distinction. Most Orthodox Jews, which are only 11%, believe the, the Hebrew Scriptures are God's Word and they need to be followed. And they believe that even though they're a separate people of God, they're allowed to work in society and intermingle and do those kinds of things. Hasidic Jews and Yeshivites. Yeshivites are the closest thing to our monks. They really live in separate communities. They're actually closer to like Amish communities. They really want to be completely separate. Hasidic Judaism, if you've ever seen Hasidic Jews, they're the ones that wear the big black hats and they wear long trench coats and they have like long sideburns and beards and they really believe that they need to live in their own communities and stay separate from most other people. That's, their, that's a branch of Orthodox Judaism. That's why people look at Judaism and say that it's basically secular. Because other than Orthodox Jews, which are 11%, most of them, the belief in God is either not part of it or optional. Yeah? Um, it's probably different for the different uh, branches and denominations, but um, like what do they believe will happen like after death? Orthodox Jews follow the Tanakh, so they will believe that there is life after death. Most of them believe that God will judge people by their works as to how they live their life and how closely they followed his commandments. Certain Orthodox Jews, especially Hasidic Jews, actually still have a messianic hope. Some of them have, some of them believe the Messiah already came and they said who he was. He was some guy that lived, I think, in New York or Brooklyn about 10 years ago and they really believe that he was the Messiah and they're clinging to that. Judaism has always been plagued, even from the time of Jesus, you could see this evidence in the Bible, they were always plagued by messianic sects, because there was this prediction in the Old Testament of a Messiah, and all these people would announce, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. I mean, you see that even on trial, Jesus, they were concerned, that, is he another false Messiah? You know, Jesus predicted that other false messiahs would show up and do this. Jews are still worried about false messiahs, and some of them have broken into smaller sects, saying, you're wrong, and some of them are like, no, he was the Messiah. But we're still dealing with a relatively small number of Jews to begin with because they're a subset of Orthodox. The rest of them, I don't think they really have much of an afterlife belief. I'm not saying that nobody who's Reformed believes in God, right? You know that. You'll find people who do. You'll find people who just out of a sense of tradition want to follow some of the rituals, right? You'll find some people who just believe it's, it's good to be connected, whether they're conservative or Reformed, okay? So these are, these are broad generalizations, but by the way, I didn't make up these categories. This is their, these are the sects that are out there. The main three are Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform, Hasidic and Yeshiva being a subset of Orthodox. And so within them, I'm sure there's some variation of belief. There's also a new group on the scene, Reconstructionist Judaism, which the best way to describe them is they just reject that there's an all-knowing God. 
So they actually go beyond reform where it's kind of like, ah, eh, you know, could be, could not be. They actually think that's just not part of it anymore. Uh, they don't accept the scriptures at all. And they just think that it's a cultural identity that is really holding Jewish people together. Humanistic Judaism is kind of the, you know what, we're just supposed to be good people. There's no religion whatsoever. It's almost like you could call it the atheistic Judaism based on humanism, but they're Jewish people who believe in a humanistic worldview. Yeah. I don't know, it just confuses me a lot. Like, I mean, I feel like there should be a distinction between the nationality that people are and what their beliefs are. Like, is that sort of, because that seems to be what the denominations are. These people are classified as, like, as Judaism only because of like, their nationality, not necessarily due to common beliefs. You're right. That's the thing that's always made Judaism a different religion. There was a recent survey done in the United States, like 52% of Jews did not believe in God, but they're Jewish. And that's why that, the question is, is it a religion? It's more than that, it's, or, or less than that, whatever you want to call it. Like, that doesn't adequately describe it. But it's not just an ethnic group or a racial group. It's not really just a, a group of people who come from a common name. It just seems like it's a combination of those things. And that's why it's hard to quantify. Because I know from, we're studying religions, and, and, and then I'm saying that they don't really believe in anything. Some of them don't believe in anything. Yeah, I mean, that, that can be a little bit confusing. But maybe if you hear directly from them, what they believe, like, I mean, I'll, I'll read you some of the things that, that were written by actual Jews describing their religion, just so you guys get a flavor of where they're coming from. Here's a woman who writes, being Jewish is an identity I inherited from both of my parents. It means celebrating the holidays of Passover, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Hanukkah. As long as I accompany my parents to the temple with my sisters, I fulfill what my parents require of me as a Jew. Another one, a man. When I was a young child, the God of Israel was very real to me. When I recited our ancient declaration, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, I would sense his presence. I thought this awesome and fearful person would get me if I didn't obey the Ten Commandments, especially the one that says, Honor your father and mother. I wonder where you learned that one. As I grew up, I became more sophisticated and worldwide. I lost the fear of God and became more concerned with the acceptance of my peer group. Since none of them, Jews or Gentiles, believe in God, and since I see no evidence of his presence in Jewish community, I've concluded that God is just a convenient sociological myth. By the way, there's Christians who believe this too, you know? So, I mean, just like if somebody said, you know, we tend to identify Christianity as somebody who believes in Jesus, but, you know, a lot of people identify Christians as just people who are born into America because if you're not anything else, you're automatically Christian. Here's another woman. I understand little of what goes on in the synagogue because I don't understand Hebrew. To me, being Jewish means good food, music that touches my heart, and stressful family gatherings. So maybe all of you are Jewish, you didn't know it. Even though there are many difficult aspects of being Jewish, I feel special and strong because of them. A woman. For me, being Jewish means family holiday get-togethers, lighting candles on Friday nights and going to synagogue. Being Jewish also means pain. Here's a man. Being Jewish means having an identity, belonging to a people who are special to God, an identity with Zionism in the land of Israel. I take pride in being part of a special people. Another woman says, for me, being Jewish is a cultural thing. I was not formally trained in Judaism, but my mom taught me some of the Hebrew prayers. Mostly being Jewish means special foods, a somewhat different sense of humor, and being liberal and intellectual. Uh, another woman, for me, being Jewish is defined by what I do and do not do, what I believe and do not believe. Beyond that, being Jewish endows me with a certain pride in being part of a people who, even though they were a persecuted minority, have always made a great impact on the world throughout our history. Being Jewish means having an identity with a people, a heritage. God doesn't seem to be at the center of who we are. 
So notice this person just says he's not at the center of who we are. Instead, we seem to honor ourselves and our achievements in the face of great opposition. Being Jewish means honoring the customs and traditions of our fathers, which bind us together as a people. Being Jewish to me has extremely traditional meaning, and there is pride. Of course, I suppose that being Jewish is an intellectual experience, exercise for my head and not at all for my heart. Though my family celebrates Jewish feasts, I do not. And in answer to your question, one woman said, being Jewish is my historical and cultural identity. I was not raised in any religious context. We are secular, intellectual Jews. For us, being Jewish doesn't involve anything religious. Being Jewish means we value education and being intellectual. It means political and social involvement in our communities. It also means fearing anti-Semitism since my mother was in a concentration camp. So the expression of Judaism is so varied and different, it's very hard for us to peg it in one place. And that's why for most Christians, when we come to understand Judaism, we have tended to misunderstand and think, there are just people who got stuck between the first part of the movie and the sequel, right? They didn't get to the second part. So if we could just show them that, oh, no, no, Jesus is your Messiah, that would be it. They'd be, oh, oh, I like the sequel too. That's a great way to finish off the first part, right? But that's not quite it. They've gone down a whole different path of rabbinic interpretation and They've had a troubled history with the church. Here's, again, Stan Telchin talking about what are the priorities of Jews in America. The preservation of our people in the state of Israel. The significance of Jewish culture. The promotion of Jewish issues. Keeping a kosher home. Going to synagogue on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Celebrating Passover with our families. Being liberal and intellectual. Giving our kids a good Jewish education. Being successful. Taking care of our young and elderly. Taking care of our need for Jewish community. Not a big emphasis on God, right? So it makes it, I know, some of us are having a hard time understanding that. Let me just take you real fast through how, when we're trying to talk to people who are Jewish, what some of our problems are going to be. First, we have a very troubled history. Right at the time that the common era happens and Jesus is resurrected and the church begins, it's rooted in Judaism from the start. So a lot of us like think, hey, wait a minute, you know, I mean, you know, we should have a lot in common with them, right? Jesus was Jewish, disciples were Jewish, Paul was Jewish. They should just see like this is a religion for Jews, right? Well, that didn't work out so good. Because what happened was we kind of took it away. It began rooted in Judaism, but right in the book of Acts, there's a crucial decision made. Gentile Christians, non-Jews, do not have to become Jews to become Christians which cleared the way for a lot of Gentile Christians to go, okay, then I'm in. And the number of Gentile Christians begins to rapidly outnumber the number of Jewish Christians. Remember, they were all Jews to begin with. But very quickly, Gentile Christians began, especially through Paul's missionary journeys, began to become the norm. And within the first 150 years, 200 years, you start to see the church fathers have a totally different view of Judaism. I mean, they've forgotten where they came from. Start with Origen, who has a lot of interesting theologies already. But he taught that because Jews had killed Jesus, Jews were to be punished and Gentiles would take their place as Israel. In other words, Jews were no longer Israel. Christians now were Israel. And Jews were going to be punished for it. Justin Martyr. Christians have become the true spiritual Israel. A replacement theology. Clement of Alexander. By the way, these are all big names, early church fathers. These are not like obscure, strange weirdos, okay? So they know our history. They know that some of our early church fathers that are very highly respected came up with some of these difficult things about Judaism. 
Clement of Alexandria, the church has replaced Israel in God's affection. Listen to that. God no longer loves Israel, is what Clement was saying. The church is now what God loves. Israel is gone. John Chrysostom, who was very influential in the early church, especially later on the Orthodox church, he gave eight sermons that were recorded and widely dispersed against the Jews. He said that the synagogue was a criminal assembly of Jews, a place of meeting for the assassins of Christ, a den of thieves, the refuge of devils, a gulf and abyss of perdition. This is the beginning of bad relations with Judaism. And we're wondering why most of them don't want to jump in. I think we've created an obstacle. I know you guys weren't around when the 4th century stuff was happening. The Crusades. Let me speed up and go really, really fast. The Crusades. I know the Crusades were against Islam in Jerusalem, but you know what? Many times the Crusades were actually turned against anybody who wasn't a Christian. When they came home and they got their butts kicked by the Muslims a few times, they would just take it out on the Jews when they got home. And other people, by the way. So the Crusades were just a, probably a bad time for the church in general. The Spanish Inquisition. Spain was one of the biggest places where Jews had made a huge impact on the culture. Spanish Jews were given a choice, convert to Christianity or leave. Some of them converted. Actually, most of them converted. A lot of them left. The ones who converted, they watched them very closely to make sure they had converted. And when they suspected that maybe they hadn't converted, they would torture them to find out if they had actually converted. There were a certain list of things that if you did, you would be punished, tortured, until you confessed that you hadn't actually converted. People were burned at the stake during this period trying to find out if they had actually converted or not. Another dark hour in Christianity. Martin Luther, the guy who started our Reformation, right? He's a hero of the faith, isn't he? Martin Luther, when he first did the Reformation, criticized the Roman Catholic Church. And they said, how do you think that these Jews would even accept Christ when you guys treat them the way you do. Look at the history of our church. So there's hope. Martin Luther begins by thinking, you know what? He's critical of how the Roman Catholic Church has dealt with Jews. Sounds like it's a, maybe a chance finally to bridge that gap. Towards the end of his life, Martin Luther was frustrated that not enough Jews had converted now that the Reformation had started. So here's what Martin Luther said. This is a quote. First, their synagogue should be set on fire. And whatever is left should be buried in dirt so that no one may ever be able to see a stone or cinder of it. Jewish prayer books should be destroyed and rabbis forbidden to preach. Then the Jewish people should be dealt with, their homes smashed and destroyed, and their inmates put under one roof or in stables like gypsies to teach them that they are not master in our land. Jews should be banned from the roads and markets, their property seized, and then these poisonous, venomed worms should be drafted into forced labor and made to earn their bread by the sweat of their noses. Does that sound like Martin Luther or Adolf Hitler? That's kind of weird, right? I mean, that's our church history. That's the guy who kicked off the Reformation and his attitude towards Judaism. Of course, Martin Luther, beginning in Germany, left the seeds behind I don't totally agree with this next part, but a lot of scholars will say that began a long line that read right to Hitler and that Hitler continued that persecution. I don't see Hitler as part of the church. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I, don't think he claimed, I don't think he believed in anything, but it's interesting to note that except for a few of the people that joined the confessing church in Germany during the Holocaust, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and a few others, most of the clergy in Germany and in Eastern Europe just marched right along with Hitler. 
and appeased them and did anything he wanted so that they didn't get persecuted themselves and left a lot of people to die. So this led to many unscriptural attitudes that I think pervade our church, and I'd like to address them so that we don't have these attitudes. Number one, one attitude we have in our churches is that when a Jew receives Jesus as Lord and Savior, he or she stops being Jewish. Yeah. I think it's just the way I'm, like, I'm wired to think, but like, I think it's just a uh, conflict of definitions and terms. I could say when a Jew receives Jesus as Lord and Savior, he, he or she stops believing in the Jewish religion, but they don't necessarily stop being a Jewish nationality. Like, those are different things, but like, somehow those have been combined and meant to mean the same thing in one mixture. That, that doesn't make any sense. It does if you look back at the Inquisition, where it's like, if you convert to Christianity, you're no longer a Jew, so we'll no longer kill you. So in other words, a person was renunciating their very identity Almost the same as I said, like, if you're from America and you become a Christian, like, do you cease being American? Like, that wouldn't make sense. You go, I'd still, I'm still American. But the church has seen Judaism only in religious terms in many times. So they're saying, like, once you accept Jesus, you're no longer Jewish. Because it'd be like if you said to a Buddhist, once you accept Jesus, you're no longer a Buddhist. But Judaism, because it operates on multiple levels, more than just faith, but cultural identity and ethnic relations and all that stuff, that has been a unbiblical view that's pervaded in the church, like just convert from Judaism and you'll no longer be Jewish. I don't think it works that easily. Like, I just think it's a definitional thing. Like, people just have to be more clear. Like, well, there's different aspects of Judaism and they are different. They cannot be like united into one thing. So, like, the, the fact that they have the same name is ridiculous. But Phil, that developed over time by the Jews' own choice that as they move further and further away from an identity as God's people, they still wanted to maintain their identity as a people. So it shifted over time from a belief in God, although some maintained it, to more of an ethnic identity and relationship, which, of course, some didn't fit it, but they were still the descendants originally, and some were also added to their number through intermarriage and other things in conversion. Then it became more of like a cultural thing, although some didn't really observe the culture anymore. Right? So finally, like, that's why I propose that maybe the best way is to look at it as a, as a nation thing, although that's the biblical term. Most Jews in America today would reject a national identity. They'd say America is our national identity. All right, here's another unscriptural view. Second one, God is through with the Jewish people because they had their chance and they blew it. That's pervaded the church for a long time. We still hear that today in echoes of our church. Hey, the Jews had a chance. They blew it. They didn't believe in Jesus. It's over. Who cares? It's done. Not biblical. The Jewish people have suffered over the past 2,000 years because they crucified Christ. I mean, we even heard that in this century. It's still going on. Like explain hard, difficult things like the Holocaust. They go, ah, oh, it's because they crucified Christ. Number four, Jews who believe in Jesus should be segregated from Gentile Christians and not be part of the church. They should have their own like messianic groups. Five, the Great Commission does not include Jews because Jews no longer matter to God. The Jewish people have their own covenant with God and do not need to live under the new covenant. And that one I still hear in churches all the time. And the reason that one's unbiblical is because even Messianic Jews will tell you that that's dangerous to believe that ah, God has a special plan for the Jews all by themselves. They don't, need to, they don't need Jesus. They don't need to convert. They're under the old covenant. We're under the new. It's totally different. Uh, that doesn't, that's not what the Bible says at all. That's tempting to believe, but that's not what it says. Here's what the Bible says. 
The Lord says, He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and the stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. He says, Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. What are the decrees he's talking about? Basically, it means only if the sun that shines by day and the moons and the stars disappear from my sight will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. God has an unending promise with Israel that you will always be a nation before me. You will always be my people. That's something we have to wrestle with at some point because God is making a promise. He doesn't change his mind on these things. And he's actually saying, I'm not changing my mind. So notice God has established this. Here's something else. He also says in the same part of Jeremiah, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That new covenant is what we're under now. I'll give you the verses if you want to read them, but basically read Jeremiah chapter 31. Paul struggled with this, being Jewish himself. What happens to the Jews? Is it too late for them? Did they miss their chance? What should our attitude be in the church today? And here's Paul's answer. It's taken from these verses, Romans 10, 1, Romans 11, 11 through 13, and Romans 11, 25. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Then moving forward, he says, but if their transgressions means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater will their fullness bring? I am talking to you Gentiles. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. He's talking to the Gentiles. Don't be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. God's plan was that Israel would be hardened in part so that the Gentiles, most of us, except maybe Monique, would be able to come into the kingdom of God. And notice there's a time until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Then the implication is it's time for them to be saved as well. That's at least one interpretation of this passage. And if their transgressions meant riches for the world, in other words, if their rejection of Christ meant this, imagine what their grafting back into would mean for the world. In fact, Paul later says it means life from death. Now, I want to look real fast as this full number of Gentiles has come in because it's interesting. Jesus used the same language. When he predicted the destruction of Jerusalem, he said these things. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against the people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Anyone know when Jerusalem was no longer under Gentile control? 1967. The implication, according to Jesus' words, if you believe this as a prophecy, is that it's now time for the Jews to come back to Christ. It's now time, using the same language that Paul just used a second earlier, he would said that their hardening is in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And that language seems to track right with what Jesus says in Luke 21 when he says that 
destruction of Jerusalem, the Gentiles will have it from that point forward. And the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled when the Jews have Jerusalem back. So, I'll leave it up there. I know we could talk about prophecy all night. That's kind of off the subject, but maybe it means that now more than ever, we're supposed to be seeing Jews come back to Jesus. If you talk to people like Jews for Jesus who are reaching out to Jews in Messianic communities, they're reporting that more and more people are starting to come to Jesus. Go ahead. I mean, I kind of had a comment to go along with it, too, where I think that the church fell short. And it just, like, it brings me so much sorrow, and it pains me to see Christians, like, this is our history. Christians have their faith because Judaism existed, because Paul, a Jew, spread Christianity. Christ was a Jew who observed these things. So maybe if we looked and reflected more of our history, it would be easier for them to come to Christ. Why don't we celebrate Passover? Why do we throw it all away when Christ said he came to fulfill law, not to abolish it? So does that mean that we no longer observe anything that the Jews used to observe? Does that mean we no longer do anything that was based in our history? Like, most Christians are completely ignorant to, like, Judaism or the Old Testament. And it's just, like, really sad. Because for me, it's brought me so much closer to God to connect to that part of my heritage and to understand it and to study it. And I think it's really important. And it says a lot to me that if Christ did certain things, why aren't we? Because we're always like, Christ did this, we should do this. Christ said this in Matthew, we should do that. Well, Christ also observed all these things and, and was a Jew. Why aren't we, you know, focused on maybe doing that as well? So I just... I think the answer is cultural, like almost every answer will be. Because we have that history where we started to make the distinction to let our own prejudices and biases dictate our faith. I mean, you know that even until the 50s and 60s, there was still large, like almost institutionalized anti-Semitism in this country. So this is one view. There's another view, the dispensationalist view. This is more of the reformed Calvinist view. The dispensationalist view believes that nope, there are periods of God's workings in the world. And Israel's time, over. Now it's, the, it's a different revelation. It's a different covenant. And we did replace Israel. And there are some prominent theologians that think that. So it continues to plague our churches because you have to decide which view do you take. Uh, I, think, I think Jesus was more the example for all people than just for the Jewish people. And I think as much as he tried to hold some of the Jewish traditions, I think that he also defied a lot of the Jewish traditions and, def and spent a lot of his time you know, going up against the religious leaders that were trying to keep that stuff. And as well as Paul, I think that he was arguing against Peter when Peter was trying to keep some of that stuff too. And he said, look, dude, like, you know, just eat the meat. Don't care if it's unclean or if it's clean, you know? You know, I mean, we do celebrate communion. Like, it is about, you know, Christ's body and this part of the Passover. Like, there's certain things, but there's so much interpretation of the Jewish tradition that it's, 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 it's kind of watered down in a sense too, you know? So. Okay, I think the answer really comes down to, at some point it was clear you didn't have to be strictly Jewish, right? And you mentioned Peter, that's true. The question is, did it go too far? Yeah. And I think in church history, probably did. Can we bring it back or do we need to? I don't know. Maybe as we start to see more Jewish Christians come back into the church, maybe it will go differently. We'll reclaim that history. Okay? Can I stop there? <laughs> Can we stop there for a second?